Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today... I have a very special guest, Dr. Paul Copan. Did I get that right? Dr. You got Copan? that. All right. Um, welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> For our listeners who don't um, know who you are, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a professor uh, and uh, the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University. I have a uh, background in biblical studies and theology as well as philosophy. I have my PhD in philosophy from Marquette University and I am uh, an author uh, and I've also edited uh, various books. I've uh, done about 30 books editing or authoring uh, and I have contributed to various journals and I've, I've done work at a scholarly level as well as a popular level, and so I've written books at a more popular level, like uh, Did God Really Command Genocide, or uh, Is God a Moral Monster, uh, or True for You But Not for Me, or When God Goes to Starbucks. Uh, so I try to make some of the concepts that are philosophical or theological or related to biblical studies um, accessible in some of these books so that people can have a better handle on what the issues are, uh, can better articulate what those views are, and uh, for Christians to uh, to defend uh, the gospel and uh, to offer insights about this, uh, especially the ancient world of the Old Testament that uh, that has uh, a number of uh, challenging passages and uh, and and issues that uh, that that trouble many people, including Christians. Amen. That's so helpful. I'm. I actually looked up at my bookshelf and I have "When God Goes to Starbucks" <laughs> on, right. on my shelf. In addition to, I have "It's Got a Moral Monster," but it's on Kindle. Um. So thank you so much for being here today. I definitely want to talk about your book, Is God a Moral Monster? Um, because I I think it's very helpful um, as we're navigating through the difficult passages in the Old Testament. For this book, what was your motivation for writing it? Well, it was, I've always been interested in this topic of Old Testament ethical challenges and uh, sometimes I would be scratching my head at some of those biblical passages that seemed uh, odd or strange or even uh, morally problematic mm -hmm. and so I uh, just over the years would just look up commentaries you know, kind of comparing passages wrestling with uh, some of these issues and uh, and of course after September 11th it seems like there had been a rise in the criticisms of not just uh, Islam, uh, but uh, in fact, if anything, people have bent over backwards not to speak against Islam, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but people like Richard Dawkins and Samuel Harris and uh, Christopher Hitchens and others uh, known as the New Atheists, they have been involved in criticizing not just Islam, but all religion. Uh, mm -hmm. So you have people like Christopher Hitchens writing uh, about how God is not great, and how religion poisons everything, and so they would 
take as their target in many of their writings the, quote, God of the Old Testament. And, and so you'd have strong criticisms against uh, the, the God of the, the Old Testament and thus the Christian faith. And, uh, and, and so what I was doing is I just wrote an article that responded to some of these objections and that got a lot of attention and then turned it into a book, uh, did, uh, you know, Is God a Moral Monster?, uh, that moral monster phrase is taken from Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, uh, who accused the God of the Old Testament as being a moral monster. Mm-hmm. And uh, that led to a follow-up book that I wrote with uh, Matt Flanagan uh, called Did God Really Command Genocide, which is a comprehensive treatment of violence in the Old Testament. So uh, so that's kind of a little bit of the unfolding of, uh, of how things have gone in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of uh, pushback in relationship to the Old Testament and this whole concept of Richard Dawkins suggests that God is a moral monster and new atheists kind of harping on that idea. They kind of use this thing that religion is the cause of violence in the, in the world. How, how, how do you respond to that in your book? Well, cause for violence. Well, I would say that the Amish people in many parts of the United States, for example, are not violent at all. They, people would classify them as religious. Uh, would you say that they are violent? No. You need to. What you need to do is be uh, careful about just using this label "religion" mm-hmm. and saying all religions are or lead to violence or something like that. They simply that's simply not true. Uh, there are some people that are who are quote religious but are very. Uh, maybe placid in their religious practices, uh, maybe, maybe just very contemplative, and and don't really engage with uh, the outside world. It's a very inner, contemplative world in which they engage. And so uh, to accuse them of engaging in violence is just uh, runs contrary to the facts. So what we need to do is actually be more discriminating and careful rather than just using these uh, very uh, catchy labels which are uh, often very unhelpful, and saying, let's take this on a case-by-case basis. Are there some religions that are more inclined toward violence than others? Are there some uh, religions that have in their scriptures a uh, mention of violence, uh, or even a promoting of violence, or setting an example for violence that is taken to be normative? Uh, you know, how does, you know, when you read, for example, in, you know, G- you know Paul or Jesus, and they talk about uh, loving your enemies, when they talk about, uh, you know, that show, you know, owe no one anything, owe no one anything but love, you know, these are the sorts of things that uh, tell us, well, no, this doesn't seem to characterize, say, the Christian faith. It seems to go beyond uh, the label of caricature that many people ascribe to you know, all religion, uh, you know, many of these new atheists. So, so that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. Take it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, secondly, the term religion itself is very, uh, what should we say, plastic, uh, very elusive, mm-hmm. uh, very difficult to define. In fact, Martin Marty of the University of Chicago, he's a, he's a quote, religion expert, uh, he says there are at least 17 definitions of religion, and uh, no one is going to, no scholar is going to agree with another on on this topic of how to define religion. Now, there is, you'll have a Buddhist who doesn't believe in God, and you'll have a Christian who does believe in God. Uh, so, but, but both of them are traditionally understood as religious, 
And I think it's, thirdly, I think it's helpful to, rather than talk about religion, I think we need to talk about something that cuts across all lines, uh, and that you, whether you're, quote, traditionally religious, or even atheistic or secular, people can do all sorts of terrible things in the name of those religions or worldviews. Uh, you know, so whatever perspective you're taking, uh, you know, I think the problem really does come down to the human heart uh, rather than just what label you carry. Uh, and so people have done all sorts of terrible things in the name of atheism. Think of Stalin. Think of Pol Pot. Uh, all sorts of atrocities that have been horrendous. Uh, do we say, oh, uh, atheism? Uh, naturally leads to this sort of a thing. Well, no, you take these sorts of things on a case-by-case basis. And and so this is the sort of thing that we need to avoid, uh, just again, that, that very quick labeling. In fact, uh, it, it just, there's a lot, again, I could say a lot more about this topic and would simply refer people to uh, some of my writings like uh, did God really command genocide, or is God a moral monster? Uh, but but those are a few things to keep in mind about, you know, does religion cause violence? Well, it depends on what we're talking about, and, and there are all sorts of worldviews that are, quote, not religious or not, not traditionally religious that could also do violence. So so let's avoid this kind of labeling and take things on a case-by-case basis and be a bit more discriminating about the sorts of labels that we use. Yeah, I think that's true. And something you said in the lecture um, I think this was, it might have been your lecture on It's Got a Moral Monster, but understanding the context and not reading the Bible literally, but literarily is um, extremely important um, when looking at the violence in the in the Old Testament or just looking at any passage of scripture, not isolating the verse and saying, well, God condones this without looking at the context. Exactly. Yeah, I, I use the example of Abraham, where God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans uh, or the Babylonians uh, to uh, to leave his country and to go to a land that God would show him. And we don't say, oh, God told Abraham to do this, therefore God is telling me to do this. Uh, that's, uh, you know, we need, we, again, we need to remember that the Bible is placed in this setting, and he, God is working with individuals. He is working to bring about the saving purposes that he has for humanity, and he has certain persons, whether it be Abraham or uh, the the prophets or uh, you know kings in Israel or, uh, of course, Jesus of Nazareth himself, who are bringing about these uh, these these saving purposes they are they're the means through which God is going to accomplish those purposes in a very specific historically contextualized way and and to transfer all of that to us today uh, requ- you know, again that is just an unwarranted leap we need to see what in scripture is normative and what is something that we call occasional or something that is situation specific so that we don't blur those lines again sometimes it's not as though there's not a caution that we need to exert here sometimes it can get a little tricky but but in in the main i think these sorts of issues of violence that that because the israelites were engaged in warfare uh against the canaanites we too ought to uh do something uh similar to that no we're we're just not in that position we don't have the signs and wonders that accompany uh these sorts of commands we don't have you know, we, we're not in the thick of things in terms of God's you know, laying out the, 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 
uh, you know, bringing about his saving purposes through national Israel and so forth. We are past that, and, and the biblical writers understand uh, how that works. And so we ought to be a bit more attuned to that as well. Um, speaking of things that are specific to the culture and that time, um, one of the things I was reading in your book was when you talked about um, polygamy and the idea of concubines and how that was kind of specific to the, to that time because if because of the situation with heirs, if the wife was um, infertile, how that affected um, a person in culture and even the whole idea was to protect women, not necessarily use them. Um, could you explain, cause one of the things, um, people, um, say is that the God of the old Testament endorses polygamy and, um, he allows, um, like the Kings to have concubines and David, you know, had many wives, Solomon had many wives and concubines. How do we reconcile that with, um, his command not to commit, um, commit adultery. And, um, I think he, there's an old Testament passage where the Kings aren't supposed to take multiple wives. So right. Deuteronomy 17, right. Yeah. How, how do we reconcile those two, um, concepts? Yeah. Well, a, a few things to keep in mind. Yes. Deuteronomy 17 does tell the King, uh, you know, does mention that the King is not to take on, you know, to multiply his horses or to take on, uh, you know, many wives or to uh, to uh, become uh, super rich uh, by you know, accumulating wealth and so forth. That there is a that the king is supposed to be setting the example uh, in this regard. And of course, Solomon himself he fails in all three of these areas. <laughs> read in in First Kings one through ten uh, that that it's actually a, a failure to keep this uh, Deuteronomistic these Deuteronomistic principles in mind. But uh, but you you also have other uh, other considerations here as well. You 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 need to keep in mind that simply because someone is practicing something, uh, that doesn't mean that it is being condoned. Uh, you have Lot's daughters, for example, who engage in an incestuous relationship with Lot, and and uh, they produce uh, children through that uh, uh, unlawful incestuous act. That you you will have. People who do things, uh, given their culture, that are not uh, that are not ideal, that are a departure from what God talks about in Genesis two twenty four, that a, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, not wives, uh, and the two will become one flesh. So you'll have deviations from this norm, and sometimes in Scripture you'll see this you know, poly- that polygamy is tolerated. You do have a certain context in which you've got warfare and so forth and where women are left destitute, then it is a way to help women who are uh, otherwise going to be in a very difficult way. And so it's a way to help them. It's also maybe a a point of prestige in some cultures to have multiple wives. It's a sign of wealth and and so on. But but you do have that sort of a uh, setting. But but it is interesting that in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, there is a, a command that, that is actually at a crucial turning point. It, it moves from uh, discussing incestuous relationships to relationships, sexual relationships outside of the, uh, these uh, family or re- you know, relative uh, bonds. 
and so Leviticus 18, 18 says you are not to take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Now, some people will see this as just uh, you know a, a not not having a your sister-in-law uh, as a uh, as a wife as a uh, you know in, in, with whom you engage in sexual relations uh, along with your your first wife uh, but rather to avoid that well that's one reading and some people do take it that way but when you look at the structure of the hebrew it it things shift at verse 18 and so it's a transitional verse and so I, a lot of people do lump this together with the preceding verses up to verse 17 which do talk about the interfamilial sexual relationships that are that are prohibited so so there is that thing that there is that factor to keep in mind uh, I do think that this there the, the admonition is strong not to take on a rival wife not someone who is a blood relative of your wife but rather someone who is you know it's not this phrase is used not it's not restricting it's not restrictive to familial relationships, but it could be a sister in Israel uh, that you talk, you know, you know it's, it refers to one woman uh, to another, or, you know, in, in the case of a man, a man to another uh, man, where you have, you know, again, it's, it's a kind of a generic term. It can refer to siblings, but, but, it, but it has a more generic reference. And here it does, this, the Hebrew structure does seem to shift uh, away from that to now introducing a new section which has to do with uh, with uh, with relationships outside the uh, the family bonds so so you there I think there is a prohibition but I understand that there are people who do take the view that polygamy is tolerated mm -hmm. uh, that God puts up with it and doesn't come down hard on people who uh, who practice this people like uh, Jacob or Abraham and so forth, but we do see even if you, even if you take that view, you have an implicit criticism in many places of those who have more than one wife. That there is a negativity associated with it, like Lamech in uh, in Genesis chapter four, uh, somebody who's a nasty guy, mm -hmm. and then you have someone who is like a you know like an Abraham uh, or Jacob who with these multiple. Or, you know, secondary wives, they get into all kinds of trouble. There is dispute with, you know, there are disputes within the households, there is rivalry and so forth. And so it, it leads to all sorts of negative consequences. It's just a bad idea. And so, uh, so anyway, you do have that kind of a fallout when you do practice polygamy. But, but anyway, uh, you know, there are scholars who take one side and, 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 and those who take the other side. But I think the, the main point is, is that it certainly is not ideal. And that uh, you know, I I do take it as being prohibited, um, but but that scripture does not come down hard on people who do practice this that was common in the in the world, you know, in the ancient Near, Near Eastern world. So again, those are a few uh, things to keep in mind. But uh, but that's probably all I should say on the matter, and just refer you to the book uh, "Is God a Moral Monster?" <laughs> um, that's interesting. I think um, because you call it, um, I think it's case case law. Right. Um, that because of the situations of it, them, the conquest um, and those women that were um, left um, without husbands, God kind of made a way for them to to be provided for, even though um, because of their situation. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and Deuteronomy talks about, uh, you know, a woman who is 
taken in warfare that uh, and and there is now some people think oh you can take women uh, as as sexual objects uh, in warfare no the scriptures are very clear that you that if you take a woman into your home and you engage in sexual relations with her it must be by way of marriage it is not just you could rape freely and so forth. That is, is a, it is a departure from a common ancient Near Eastern practice in warfare to engage in, in rape and so forth. No, not for Israelite soldiers. They were to engage in a principled way and that you gave a prospective wife the opportunity to mourn so she would shave her hair, she would cut her fingernails. It would be, no, everything would be uh, a for a month, it would be an opportunity to kind of say goodbye to her own her old way of life and to now embark on a new way of life within the uh, within the uh, Israelite culture. And so, uh, so again, it was to not to rape this woman; it was to consider taking her as a wife. And with that. Uh, you know, again, sexual relations come only after the marriage, not before. It's not as though you use this object. So it is a way of protecting uh, women. And a lot of these, as you said, a lot of the provisions that are made with regard to uh, women in the Old Testament, so often they are the, the vulnerable ones. They're the ones who can be taken advantage of. And so many of these laws are actually protective measures for them so that they will not be taken advantage of uh, rather than to uh, use them as sexual objects or something. No, it is actually a, a, a great concern. You know, and the scriptures talk about looking out for the orphan, for the widow, uh, for the alien in your midst. And so basically God is saying the ones who are the most vulnerable are the ones you ought to look for, look out for uh, the most. Amen. Um, I, I think that's helpful when understanding um, this idea um, that a lot of people put on the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is misogynistic. What what kind of things would you say um, to those who have that view? Well, when it comes to misogyny, we see from the very beginning that there is equality, that God makes both male and female in his image, that the woman is taken uh, from the side, from the rib of the man, which again, so, which indicates equality. Uh, there is not is not taken from the from the the foot or something like that, but there is the rib that shows this partnership, this equality. The woman is called a helper. Uh, this doesn't mean like uh, a little uh, like a little girl might be baking with her mommy, and her her mom you know, her mom calls her her little helper. Uh, no, God is most often referred to as the helper. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is the helper of Israel. Uh, we certainly don't want to put God into that sort of an inferior position. No, God is the one who who is a, is a great strength as the helper. And in the same way, there is that partnership of man and woman. Uh, the, there is a fundamental equality, and and also women are treated with regard to, you know, with regard to the law of Moses. Uh, women are held to the same standards as men. If they engage in adultery, the the penalty is equal. Uh, when you see that. The scriptures talk about, uh, you know, some, some scholars have said, look, when it says don't covet your, your neighbor's wife, don't, cover, don't covet his donkey and so forth, look, the woman is, uh, is just seen as uh, a, a possession, an object. Uh, well, no, just read a few verses earlier where it says, honor your father and your mother. 
this is you know, there is a, a a fundamental equality. The Book of Proverbs says, you know, heed the advice of your father, listen to your mother. Uh, both of them are seen as uh, authorities. Both of them are seen as ones have worthy of respect and regard. Uh, that there there is a there is a presumed equality here, even if the man in the ancient Near Eastern household in Israel is a kind of the, the legal point person who makes decisions and so forth. Yes, there is a, uh, a holdover of patriarchy, but the scriptures remind us of the fundamental equality that there is between a man and a woman, and that there is a high regard that, uh, that we see for the woman, that she is one who is uh, equal before the law, that she is one who is a partner, uh, an equal partner in, in the marriage, and that, there is to, and that the children are to honor both father and mother, which was, again, a, a remarkably different uh, sort of thing in the rest of the ancient Near East, which did not have that kind of symmetry of, of regard for both father and mother. I think that's, that's very helpful. Um, as it relates to, um, to your book, what is the, the, um, what would you want to leave with our listeners in relationship to your book, is God a moral monster? Well, I, it's helpful to keep in mind that God's ideals are not always articulated in the law of Moses. That there are certain things that are, for one, changing. You, you will see a certain dynamic in the law of Moses that as time progresses, there will be improvements and modifications. Uh, you know, so there's a certain dynamism, like moving from altars that are uh, just made of uncut uh, stones to altars that are uh, made, that are covered with gold and so forth. Uh, you will see a kind of, this kind of dynamism in that the law is not something static, but that God is uh, modifying things in, in order to meet the needs of the Israelites. But God meets people where they are, and, you know, instead of, you know, having Ideal, the most ideal laws possible. Uh, God beats the people where they are in their fallen ancient Near Eastern structures that are patriarchal and uh, that is that presume uh, war, warfare and so on. Uh, that, as Jesus said in Matthew nineteen eight, that God commanded these or God permitted these things because of the hardness of human hearts. That there are, that you know, just think about bringing changes to a place like Saudi Arabia. Try to bring democracy to a place like Saudi Arabia. This is something that is quite a challenge. That there is a certain mindset that needs to be adjusted. That this sort of a thing can't be overhauled uh, in a short period of time. There's a certain worldview even mm -hmm. that needs to be changed. So so when when we see God giving commands in the Old Testament. We need to understand that many of these, yeah, yeah, they're good, but as N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, puts it, the, the law is like a booster rocket. That what, Yes, it, it serves its purpose for a time, but once the law is, has done its job for the people of Israel to prepare the way for the Messiah, then that falls away. And so we see in Jesus, the one who, who brings these shadowy things from the, the law of Moses into their perfect fulfillment. He is the one who is the full expression of God's character. And so it's helpful for us to remember that these things point to the ultimate fulfillment, to the, to the ideal, to the perfection, uh, moving from the shadow to the substance of Jesus himself, that he is the one who affirms 
what you know what the God of the Old Testament has been saying. He is the one who faithfully represents this God of the Old Testament, but he also reminds us that there is an ideal that is summed up in him. And so it is from him that we get our cues, not repudiating, repudiating the Old Testament, but recognizing that it had its place for a time, but now Jesus is the, the leader of the new Israel, the new people of God, and now following the law that he has given to us in his teaching, as well as the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. Amen. I think that's very helpful. And as, as you were talking about, um, you know, thinking about the law as and and the different changes that were made, and the idea that in, in a lot of things it was circumstantial, thinking about our, our future as a country and as a nation in five, because I was asking Dr. Moeller about this with the transgender and um, the same-sex marriage coming up, how churches kind of will have to adjust and they'll have to kind of, there'll be different things that we have to put in place. And so if you have a couple that's um, same-sex marriage that comes to church and they have children if you have a transgender person that comes to church, how would that look helping them walk the process of sanctification? It's kind of the same idea as like, in a sense, I don't know why my mind made that connection, like the case by case basis. Sure. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's so, so critical that we you know that we, um, rather than using a one size fits all approach that we do uh you know we do take these sorts of things on a on a on a case by case basis that not that there aren't principles that that are that are underlying that we that we uh, that are go to principles but uh but yeah we are i think just overall in our culture we need to be people who are good listeners, that we are ones who come to understand the people that we're uh, seeking to reach, the people who are broken and, and, and hurting. And, and that's true of us all. We, we all come, as, Mark, as, as someone has said, we're, we're like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Mm-hmm. And so in, in light of this kind of brokenness and so forth, we need uh, you know, more hearts of compassion. Uh, we need to be better listeners. We need to be those who recognize our own brokenness uh, in, in this fallen world as well. So, so yeah, this is uh, this is a good a good admonition for us all. Amen, Doctor Copen. Tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you on social media and your website, and how they can get your book. Is God a moral monster? Okay, sure. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah my my website is paulcopan.com, p a u l c o p a n, and you can find my books, whether it be. Is God a Moral Monster, or Did God Really Command Genocide, or I have a book on biblical ethics uh, that is uh, called An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, which covers a lot of this sort of stuff and lots more, uh, practical advice on from parenting to dating to uh, principles related to abortion and euthanasia, covers a lot of territory. Uh, so just take, you can just take a look at my website, paulcopan.com, and you can find uh, my books at Amazon.com and other other places that are similar, like Barnes and Noble, etc. So, so that's a, that's a place that they can look. And um, I'm actually I I'm, I am on Facebook, although I've hit my max of five thousand, so I need to upgrade <laughs> to to uh, another Facebook account. So stay tuned for that. But that's uh, where I am in that regard. But uh, but I am uh, accessible in you know through my website. People can email me, and that's uh, hopefully that, that'll give give you enough of a start there. Awesome. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Great to be with you, Lisa. Lisa, Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it